I can tell you what I'm seeing, which is it's responding because so much is happening. The year end, it's largely not happening in the vast majority of schools and that has been confirmed. So it's responding to that. I think the recovery is not even recovery at this point. It's getting a felt sense of the community needs that runs the gamut from kids for whom school is their primary source of food to teachers being entirely burnt out because what they're doing is extraordinary. The amount of work that it's taken to shift from one mode of delivery to another and then all the emotional upheaval that comes along with that. Hi, this is Josh and this is the Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. As a hyper-educated person who, late in life, which is to say my 40s, learned that doing well in school didn't mean success in life, especially when school works based on coercion and compliance, and later coming to see that learning social and emotional skills, only later did I see that that improved my life And I see that as the solution to our world's greatest problems, also the lack of that as a cause of it, as opposed to learning more facts, figures, recall of factual information. Given that background, education and learning, not just scoring higher in tests, is at the core of my leadership practice, both what I do and how I coach and teach others. Today, I bring another pinnacle of education work, Julie Wilson. She'll describe who she is, but she coaches and advises school leaders, educational institutions, and foundations. She came out of Harvard. She worked there and and is an award-winning educator. I wanted to talk to her about self-directed education as I start in the beginning, and we do a bit, but the changes and upheaval from COVID-19 that it's causing and the unpredictability of anything to come changed everything. I mean, the conversation, but also education. Julie reveals the inside view of an area with as great upheaval and as great consequence as any field. You'll hear as we're talking how much it blows my mind, and I'm kind of in it. But I didn't realize how important this, I mean, how big these changes are. So she shares that inside view, as well as her own personal take. You'll hear in the emotion of the conversation. I'll let you listen to it. Here's Julie Wilson. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Julie Margreta Wilson. Julie, how are you? I am well, Joshua. How are you? I'm very good. And we were just talking about what I want to talk to you most about and what I've wanted to talk to you is about self-directed education. I've had a few people on about it. And to me, it is utterly fascinating. I wish if I could go back in time, I would learn that way. or I would pick a school that way. I can't go back in time as far as I know. But it to me, it's like a very deeply connected with democracy. And, and it's, it's this totally different style of learning. You've been in it, like you're there. So I'm, I'm interested in talking about that. Before we hit record, we were also talking about the virus and the pandemic and how that's going to change education. Maybe we should start with a little bit about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> what would be helpful? <laughs> what do you specialize in? And is it a passion of yours? Mm. What do I specialize in? Well, I'll start with my big question, which is, is it possible to design, build, and live 
a life of one's own choosing, regardless of demography. So this question has emerged for me over time. And it's why I, I love working in education, because ideally, you know, a system of education, if you've been in it for 12 years, should give you the skills, knowledge and habits of mind to be able to do that. Uh, and I would argue, and many other people uh, would argue, it does not currently do that. And in, in many ways, it basically perpetuates demography. You know, the biggest predictor of what happens to you is your zip code. So there is lots of work to be done there. And you know, in, in the book that I wrote, The Human Side of Changing Education, that was an opportunity just to really unpack what do I actually think? Because the work that I love to do is coaching leaders, uh, leaders leading change. And that's very much about you and your vision and what do you want to accomplish and how might you get there? And I've never actually taken the time to sit down and think through and write, what do I think? So that was, that was my opportunity to do that. You mentioned a connection that I forgot to mention when I said self-directed education or just education in general. I said to democracy and you said to leadership and leadership is it's in the title of this podcast. Mm -hmm. And okay. Contrasting education. You said a lot of people would argue that education doesn't provide the 12 years of education doesn't provide us with, I forget how you put it to be a citizen is what I felt like. Uh, Maybe I'm being too jaded. Is there anyone who argues that it, that it does effectively in this country? I guess when you say demography, you mean where you're born, what neighborhood you're, do I read you right? that there would be a system of, system of education that would nurture your talents and expose you to a wide variety of experiences, difficult experiences, experiences where you were coming face-to-face with your own potential and what might be possible, and really nurturing that. Uh, at the risk of getting woo-woo, I believe that every one of us arrives on this planet with a curriculum. and we are fulfilled, not necessarily happy as in, you know, a very blasé version of happy, but a core level of meaningfulness and direct correlation to the extent to which you're following that curriculum. Who is your, when you teach now, who do you teach? And who you've, I mean, you've taught K to 12. Now you're teaching at Harvard. So yeah. I, I, I have not taught K through 12. Oh yeah. Okay. I don't have a traditional background. I, the only teaching of children experience I have is a year in France teaching English uh, to French children from the ages of six up through to 19. That was very informative, uh, but I'm not a traditional classroom teacher. I have spent the last 20 or so years really focusing on adult development. And it was through 20 years of that work, after, after about a decade of that work, this theme kept coming up for me, which was so much that what uh, we were helping leaders do and uh, staff managers doing so many of these courses we were teaching and the one-on-one coaching was essentially to unlearn what they learned through a standardized system of education. So that brought me back to K through 12. And in 2011, I started the Institute for the Future of Learning, which is a nonprofit. And the mission of that uh, small organization is to transform the one size does not fit all model of education. So fast forward nine years, almost a decade later, I am really struck by how the current global pandemic is really shaking the foundations of not just K through 12, but higher ed, our entire system of learning. 
globally. And for the most part, the global system of learning is based on the industrial model. So the big pillars that are in place around, you know, must go to college, that higher education is the tail that wags the K through 12 body. Uh, testing, the role of school as too often a custodial function. You know, where, where do the kids go? If they're going to be self-directed, where do they go? How do we keep them safe? All of that is, is being thrown up on its head. They're all with the parent. You know, our mental models around what learning looks like, what good learning, effective learning uh, is in practice. So there's just an incredible amount of change underway right now. And as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to work out what is the signal that's starting to come out from the noise. That's one piece. And then the other piece is, as we look at potentially, this is wave, wave one. Do we have wave two, wave three, wave four, pending a vaccination, pending mass testing? The more this goes on, the more the system is going to have to change. I mean, and, and with that comes destruction. Well, before, before predicting the future, what are you seeing right now? If someone had a tape recorder and, you know, if they heard the conversations you've had, because I presume you're not in meetings with people in person. No. What are you seeing and what are you hearing from people in your world now? Mm-hmm. What are the problems? What are the solutions, if any? What, are, what do you see? Because most of us don't, you have an inside view, mm-hmm. a rarefied view. So I'll just throw a bunch of stuff out. I'll be hyperlinking all over the place here. Uh, one, just an example, assessment. So the timing of this pandemic has coincided with, quotes end of year testing season. And folks like the APs, uh, I was chatting with the head of an English department uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying the AP college board decided that instead of a multiple choice plus three 45-minute essay questions, it's just going to be one essay question. So I'm wondering for those kids sitting the AP next year, what happens to them? It, you know, is this year's AP as valid as next year's? And, you know, why three essay questions and why the multiple choice? Just understanding that there's so much change happening right now and decisions have to be made. But then I hope there are a lot of conversations that go back to first principles and really thinking through, you know, why are we testing this in the first place? Is it a skill, knowledge, habits of mind that, um, that will be helpful moving forward? The just that whole question of testing. I mean, there's a lot of conversation about that. Uh, what I'm also hearing and reading about, and just friends, colleagues, clients, the extraordinary pressure of parents having to work full time if they're lucky enough to still have a job and homeschool their kids. And uh, I'm thinking of a, a colleague working from home has a five year old and an eight year old. And the discrepancies in her work team where there are folks who don't have kids and they're coming up with what she said are great and creative ideas, but she is barely keeping her head above water. And meanwhile, has something like four to six different email addresses, uh, different logins for Google Classroom, just the coordination feat of all of that. It is not actually doable. And the question is, how much of it is actually needed? And then just another thing that a very good friend of mine, Laura, sent me a fantastic video by Caitlin Moran. I've just been uh, introduced to Caitlin, courtesy of Laura. And Caitlin's out of the UK. 
and she was homeschooled. She's the eldest, I think, of eight kids. And she gave this hilarious 12-minute, if you're homeschooling your kids, here is some advice. And she mentioned this phrase that I hadn't come across before called de-schooling, which isn't the Ivan Illich version, version of, you know, throw everything out, but rather if a parent or parents decide to homeschool their kids, there is this period of what they call de-schooling, where you're essentially in withdrawal from having been in the system. And it manifests itself in different ways that uh, teachers, uh, sorry, the parents and the kids themselves might be wanting structures, but really what is the reason for this structure? Or uh, as she said, and this is what she was um, really advocating for in her YouTube address, which was your kids might be on Snapchat for three hours with their friends. That's okay. There is a decompression here of having gone from a thing that is highly structured to being in a highly uncertain circumstance to whatever is going to be next. And I hadn't really thought of it in that way before, which is there is something like this decompression. It's a state of great unknowing and great uncertainty. And ask me why I know this. Uh, there is such a grasping for control and knowing. And I'm catching myself doing this all the time, which is trying to control my day, trying to get my arms around what's happening and the opportunity to just surrender and to be with what currently is, I'm finding extraordinarily difficult. And (laughs) as I'm talking myself uh, around this, there's a part of me that knows that, that, that that's what collectively we, be, we are being asked to do. And that's the invitation. And I think of myself as, you know, card carrying member of the control freak squad, uh, trying to, um, to get some sense of order to, you know, control my day to quote, try and make some things happen when, oh, by the way, there's a global pandemic happening. So it speaks to a great deal of uh, ego on my behalf that <laughs> that's where my head is at. I want to get back to what you're saying about the people, they're going through withdrawal. I presume that's on the parents' part, the students' part. I can't imagine, I would imagine on the teachers' part as well, wherever they are, if they're involved in this, in the education still, if someone's being homeschooled. Now there's, I, I read a confluence of, there seems to be different things that are related. There's structure, which to me, like I have a very structured, I have my daily habits that, that structure my day. Separate from that is is coercion and compliance, which schools are very, my schooling education was very compliance-based, based on coercion, not on inspiration. So I distinguish between structure and coercion because mm-hmm. I structure that I impose upon myself for reasons that I know what they are. Mm-hmm. Those are important to me. It, what you say also reminds me of a big shift for me was a friend of mine. He was getting his degree at Teachers College at Columbia at the time, or maybe it was just after. He was teaching now. And yeah, he was teaching because he said he only gave one test in his whole teaching career to his students. And I thought, well, okay, I don't know anything about how he, how he taught. He said there was some um, uh, performance-based assessments instead of testing. So I didn't know what that meant. Those are just words to me. And I thought, well, teach whatever you want. But you know, in, once they get out of your learning style, or your teaching style, they're going to have to go out in the world where everyone else has taken tests and they better get used to that. And then it hit me, wait a minute, tests don't exist outside of school. (laughs) 
And to some degree, I see why tests would exist in some areas. If you want an engineer and you want to make sure the bridges are not going to fall down, you're probably going to want to make sure they have a certain level of, of knowledge. But for K to 12, the more, it was like I, he gave me the, the piece of a sweater that I started, the one loose yarn of a sweater and I started pulling it. The whole sweater came unrivaled. Hmm. That it wasn't just testing was unnecessary. The testing wasn't even for the students at all, it seemed to me. It was for the administrators and for the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And we're measuring their performance as a proxy for the students. So now I'm getting ahead of myself of what you were saying before. I think this could be an opportunity to go back to first principles. Why are we teaching? And if we had tests before, and it's difficult to do that now, are we simply going to figure out how to reform the test? Or are we going to go back and like reform, meaning not, not reform, but put it together in a new way? Or are we going to go back and say, what was the test for in the first place? We have that opportunity. My gut tells me there's a bureaucracy out there that who's with tens of millions of people whose income depend on it going back to the old way, independent of what value there is to this to the students or the teachers or the parents or, or society. But are we here to serve a bureaucracy or is the bureaucracy here to serve us? Is this what you're thinking about? Am I I don't know what's going on. I feel like Sudbury Valley School, the only self-directed learning place I know is probably not that different. I don't know. I don't know if the kids are going there or not, but I feel like this would be a huge learning opportunity for them. I feel like the high school where I went, they're probably throwing up their hand. I, I, that, I'm kind of curious. Mm-hmm. Teachers would tell you, <laughs> the vast majority of teachers that I know, that you know, testing takes up an extraordinary amount of the school year and really limits the learning. So the, we're in a position where we value what we assess and we don't assess what we value. And I think back to a graduate course that I took with David Perkins called Educating for the Unknown. And three of the questions were, what's worth learning? How is it best learned? And how do we know it has been learned? And I think if we were to ask ourselves those three questions from first principles today, we would have a very different system. But we've essentially inherited a system that's at least a century old at this point. And again, the research tells us that your score on on these tests is much more indicative uh, of where you live as opposed to what actually happens in the classroom. And schools find themselves, and even more so today, uh, in the crosshairs of this. And the pressure on schools, for example, to uh, address poverty. Now, if you think of kids arriving at a school in a very affluent suburb compared to kids in a real high need area in inner city and their grade level expectations. And as a kid, you know, regardless of whichever, you know, background I'm coming from, I'm not seeing what, what's the overarching point of this. You know, so much in, in the system, when you start to really ask those three questions of what's worth learning and how's best learned and how to know what has been learned from first principles, there's a fair amount of the emperor has no clothes. Okay. You just stopped talking. And I thought, I thought this was like, that tells me the most important questions, the answers indicate that we're doing it all wrong. I couldn't help but think she's just told us what is her passion, what's driving her. Presumably, you want to do something about this. Yes. So, I mean, at its core, we have a standardized system. And what we need is a system that is student focused. And it's very easy to say those words it is extraordinarily difficult to do it. 
And right now we are all getting, uh, folks who take care of children uh, are getting a really, uh, in many cases, brutal immersion into what that looks like. I've been reading, for example, this past week of different news articles, parents saying, I, I thought my kid was at you know, this basic level of reading and math, and they're not. And another parent saying, my child was on a behavioral, behavioral support. Uh, kid was acting up a lot in school. said, I think I know why, because he just finished a week's worth of worksheets in 90 minutes. My son is bored. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have behavioral issues. He is bored out of his mind. So whenever I, I wrote the book, first of all, that this, the book uh, is currently available. That was the fifth version of the book. I went through a dark night of the soul writing it because the first book that I wrote uh, basically said this, the system was designed, any system is designed to achieve the results it's currently achieving. So that being the case, we can't redesign the system. The system's obsolete. We need to fund everything we can on the periphery and let this system fall. And I remember uh, quite clearly uh, sitting with my friend Melissa over a salad <laughs> downtown Boston in tears saying, I, I can't believe what I've written. And she's saying, well, what, what, what's the issue? And I said, what I'm basically saying is it's okay to give up on a generation of kids because that, that's what the natural outcome of letting the system fall is. So then Melissa asked me, well, do you, you know, what else do you know? And I said, well, I, I do know of uh, school districts and uh, many teachers doing phenomenal work in their classrooms. And I know that if these certain criteria are in place, transformation does have a chance. And she said, well, why don't you write about that? So then I wrote about that. And then I hit the wall with that argument, which was, okay, uh, it's unlikely if we've got 15,000 school districts in this country that 15,000 superintendents and 150,000 or so principals are going to say, okay, let's go forth and lead this level of change. So that being the case, uh, what do I think might be helpful? And at that point then, uh, I was reminded that I've met so many people inside and outside the system doing incredible work, be it actively in the system or outside it. So that was essentially the the next, almost like two books, that was like the second book, which is then unpacking the hero's journey and the call to adventure. And if you have an idea in your heart to change the system, we need you to do it. Because what I realized was when I was writing the book, I was trying to come up with the silver bullet on how to change the system. When people way more intelligent than me, with way more experience than me, hadn't come up with that answer. So again, Park the ego, Julie, and <laughs> let's think of um, what are you actually seeing and hearing. And when I was thinking about that hero's journey uh, last week, it just struck me that the entire world, whether we want to or not, we are we have currently been thrust upon our individual and collective hero's journey. Uh, and the hero, hero's journey, as you probably know, is the transition from the known world to the unknown world. And right now. Uh, every single one of us has crossed that threshold. We might be clinging to the door <laughs> on either side of that threshold, uh, but we're on it. And what we decide to do next is, I, th- I think it's going to decide what happens. Well, okay, when you said that to, to decide what happens, that tells me that you're taking an active role or you intend to. I hope you're not just saying, I hope things happen 
and I'm just going to watch and report on it. You might be, that would be an interesting thing. But if you know what would work better and you know what's not working, I would think, I, I would think you want to play an active role and, and have a vision for where things might end up and how that transition might happen and what your role might be, what my role might be, what anyone's role might be. Well, I, to be honest, Joshua, I'm working that out. I don't have an answer to that question. I do know that I want to play a role. And historically, it's been coaching leaders, uh, writing the book, giving keynotes, leading workshops. But I think I need to set my game up. And I'm still in the process of working out what that might be. And I don't have a nice, neat answer right now. But I, I feel like something is percolating and endeavoring to keep myself honest with that. So, you sound... I'm not going to check my ego. Uh, and so if this sounds off, I, I apologize. But you sound like I did when I was looking at the environment and saying, I knew what ought to happen or what I believed ought to happen. And I thought, you know, I want to train people so that the next generation can fix this. And then I realized, wait a minute. That's what the last generation said. I'm just passing off the buck to someone else saying, I'll teach leadership and they and, and I'll get the, a new generation of leaders who will solve the problems. And I thought, do I believe that I can lead? If I don't, what am I doing teaching it? And if I do, I think leadership is needed now, not later. And I think the it will teaching and leadership overlap a lot. So I think that I would I would be leading people to become leaders. But also, I decided I mean, this podcast is one of the outcomes of what can I do myself? I mean, it's my personal behavior, but that's not to lead others. That's just a matter of integrity for me. Uh, they're not flying. You know, I hope people emulate or learn from my experience. But I don't believe that my not flying makes any more than that divided by 7.7 billion. It's not that big of a deal. But influencing others can make a big difference. And I felt suddenly, I felt a fear that I'd known and read about many times of, you know, if you try and fail, everyone's like, oh, fail, fail forward, fail off. And everyone, everyone who's, I've never heard that from someone who's it's really- terribly sexy, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's really scary. Because I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try to change at least this nation's, at least 350 million people's behavior. I'm, I'm going to try to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather not try because I can live a comfortable life. I think, you know, I can afford to not bother, bother with this stuff, but I went for it. I'm glad I have. I don't know how, what difference I've made so far, but I'm on, a, I'm on my way there. Why am I saying this to you now? I don't know, because maybe you made me think of it. I guess partly I'm still scared, but also I can't conceive of, I only wish I'd started earlier and realized this earlier and not said, I hope the next, it kills me now when I hear people say, it's so great that the youth are stepping up and they are taking charge. Because when I hear someone say that, I hear someone trying to absolve themselves of responsibility to to change themselves or to change people around them. Hmm. And it's just passing the buck is what I hear but they say it in flowery words. So they sleep well at night mm-hmm. and they're robbing themselves of the opportunity to be a part of uh, clean skies, clear water, clean you know, vegetables that are growing in clean land. I don't know. How's this sound? Well, you've got, got me thinking, you know, what can I do? And your whole point about, you know, fail forward and fail faster. You know, it sounds great. And it's usually told in the context of success. 
it's usually told by people who haven't who haven't hit the bot rock bottom after failing. It's mm-hmm. I have got the tears, you know, like it it's brutal. I, I don't say it so glibly. I don't it's not something I, I usually like, yes, you do have to fail. And the, you have to have learning experiences, I, I might say, instead. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's like something to be coy about or be be lighthearted about. Mm-hmm. And you've got me thinking, because again, my default is trying to make sense of something and then I'll talk about what I'm seeing. Maybe I need to do what I've been asking the system to do, which is to be a lot more comfortable with the ambiguity of change, which is not knowing, which is complex, which is uncertain. So instead of thinking I need to come up with the answers, maybe I start talking more about my questions and what I don't know and keeping it at that level and seeing what what emerges from that. Go on. I'm just working this out as I go along, Joshua. <laughs> it, it, it's fascinating. The potential for learning amidst all of this and, you know, the whole field of thought leadership is all about having, for the most part, you know, a nice framework, a nice model. You know, here's the thing. Here's the nice shiny thing. Here are the three steps, five steps, go forth and be successful. But maybe we're in this current wave of, it's not thought leadership, but it's you know, learning leadership. You know, who will be our lead learners? Uh, who can exhibit a level of comfort with the ambiguity and the uncertainty. And, you know, any surfer will tell you that the minute you try to control the wave, that's when the wave wipes you out. So what does this look like as industries literally shake amongst us and education being one of them? I'm very interested to hear what you come up with of, of things. There's so much stuff that I read that's like, here's what should happen and here's the way it should be written by people who are not doing anything to make these things happen. And it's like, they're, they're trying, I think they feel like I'm putting a map out for someone else to follow. And we have all these people are putting maps out and no one's, they're not doing anything to lead people to follow. They're not themselves doing it. I was in a meeting. I remember at at NYU, there was uh, this professor and she was putting together all the leadership professors at NYU because NYU is like, got a million different departments and schools. And I'm talking to this guy and he says, I teach leadership and I go, tell me more. And he says, I teach leadership theory, only theory, not practice. And I tried to think of what is the value of leadership theory? And the only thing I could come up with, and maybe I'm being a bit jaded. The only thing I could come up with is to teach leadership theory. In this regard, it could be a self-perpetuating field, that, <laughs> but purely in its own, what's what I'm looking for? Like, like an Ouroboros, like just, but not eating its own tail, just like an echo chamber. Pointless. Yeah. And I can't imagine a leadership theory teacher also leading. I, I couldn't sense in him what he was in if he had any practice, any experience leading besides a classroom. But I would guess it probably knowing NYU was a probably an authoritarian. Well, the theory has to come from something. What has to come the theory has to come from something. Yeah. Someone yeah. with something. Well, I think of reading other theory books. I could be off. Maybe this guy did a lot of leading. Yeah, to me, theory... How do you, how do you define leadership? Me? Mm-hmm. I'm asking you, how do you define leadership? If you're asking what my definition is of it, or do you mean how do I get to that definition? How, I would ask you, what is leadership? What would you say? 
my working definition of leadership is to help people do what they've wanted to do, but haven't figured out how. So I don't want to help someone do something that they don't want to do. I don't want to come and tell them what to do. That, that's not leadership. That's coercion to me. It could be lots of things. And if they know how to do it themselves, they don't need leadership. You know, there's lots of different contexts. That's like more one to one, one person within a, a working team or one person to another person. Leadership in, if you want to lead a nation, that's a different story, but some similar stuff. Now, how I got to that was, I mean, at the beginning, I would take classes and they'd say like, what's your definition of leadership? And I'd try to put it together from what I'd read. Mm. This is, this has emerged from my practice. If people work with me, my initial goal is to find out what they want. If I can help them achieve that, then, then I start acting. If I can't get what they want or what they want is, is, doesn't fit with me, if they want something that I think is, I can't help with or that I don't like that goal, maybe I won't, I won't work with them because there's plenty of others who are trying to figure these things out. So I have to start with empathy and compassion to, and support for them to feel comfortable sharing what they want because that's not going to come out usually at the beginning. That's usually something they protect. Mm, yeah. Interesting. You mentioned the map earlier that you know, folks are providing the map and it painted something for me, which was, I think that's part of the challenge and opportunity of where we are right now. I think we are all, myself included, grasping for a map and we don't even know what the terrain is. Mm-hmm. And it just got upended by the virus. Yes. We are in completely unknown terrain. So, and changing like whatever it is today, it's not going to be that tomorrow. Like it's unknown and and like volcanic, <laughs> like islands are appearing that weren't there and disappearing where they were, mm-hmm. unpredictably. On the other hand, I think of educate. I mean, my model for education has changed a lot, and I don't work with kids, so I don't. I can't really say for there, but I feel like that a long time ago, Peter Gray's book was a big book for me. Free to play for no free to learn. I just saw this picture of, of kids that grew up in non, not our system of sitting in rows and, and lecture. And, and for most of our ancestral history, our ancestral history, and I, I don't have the data here. This is me. There would just be like people and the kids weren't going to classes. They would just hang around and every adult would help every child in learning in some way. And kids would play with dangerous things that we would call dangerous but you, you know, you cut your hand once and then you realize don't do that again. Mm-hmm. And we don't protect everything. And, and you said earlier, they have to face challenges. I forget what you said. It was like, you have to face challenges. You have to overcome, you have to solve difficult problems, something like that. And they weren't told what to do. And yet they probably learned how to be a citizen more effectively than we today, where when something goes badly, when something goes unexpected and we don't want it, or we don't want it that way, we, we go to an authority and ask the authority to fix it through some coercive means. So now we're returning to where we're not sitting in rows. I'm speculating here. I just hear a little bit from my sister who's got a son and two daughters, and they're suddenly at home. They're not even leaving the house for several days on end. Mm-hmm. And they're reconstructing how to learn. And my sister and my sister actually has a couple of degrees, one from, from teacher's college in international education. So she's not like, it's not out of the blue here. Mm-hmm. But- I feel like we're returning to a time when the people who are teaching are deeply, deeply love the the students, their children. Mm -hmm. We've lost the community of where you have a group of people together and like, I'm taking care of your kids. Sometimes you're taking care of my kids sometimes. And so we've lost this big, important thing of this community 
experience and the peers. I mean, I haven't even considered before talking to you what what comes next. Is it just for a couple of years? Is it for decades? But I certainly, since my friend over the years, I, I don't like to give tests. And I always have problems with the deans because they're constantly asking me, where are the papers? Where's the rigorous academic study in what you're doing? And my students consistently at the end tell me, I know someone else who's in another section of this class and I learned much more than they did, mm-hmm. even though I didn't tell them the answers. Mm-hmm. And I hope that I'm not just getting a selection effect, that maybe I'm, I'm ruining other students' education experiences <laughs> and they're just not coming to me. They're like, oh, Professor Spodek sucks. I, it could be, I, I hope not. But if I were in the thick of it, if I were trying, if I were an administrator, if I were someone who education was, was a greater passion than the environment, and not hurting people through pollution and things. I'm trying to think of what I would do. And that's why I'm, ta- I'm asking you, <laughs> what are people doing? And I hope it's not just like, if there's a ship and the waves are getting white water and the winds are going up and you can't see, like there's, when there's a wave coming at you, you can't see past that. Is there another way past that? Or is, is, is there calm or not? And I hope it's not just a whole system of people just grabbing on for their life and no one's stepping up to calm to vision to, I mean, my, I've my model for leadership. I don't know if that's the best model for what's going on. I'm thinking of, uh, of um, Walt Whitman and Oh Captain, my captain. And is, is there not that a lot of people don't want like a single one person. I'm not saying that, I, but something to maybe my model of, of like a ship being tossed about in stormy seas is not the right model, but I feel like I hope there's someone who's been through something like this before or can handle something like this and, and and sees this as an opportunity to help people not just hold on for dear life, but also right the ship. And I guess I was, I was talking to someone recently, I've been trying to sail across the Atlantic because I'm not flying. I got invited to do all these talks in, in Europe and I almost went across, but virus. And uh, a guy was telling me about the first time he was a captain or a skipper of a ship and a storm hit out of nowhere he was the skipper and he had to figure things out. Now he could handle that. And there are people who have handled much worse, but I'm wondering, is there, is that model, is that picture a reasonable picture to, I mean, I'm sure there are many ways to look at the situation. If so, are there, is there anyone who, or are there groups that are, whatever is the best thing? Are they trying to figure out what the best thing to do is and are they doing it? Or or is everyone just huddling in their cabins? Uh, no, I don't think everybody's huddling in their cabins. I think, you know, depending on where you're coming from, majority of us have been in this for about a month at this point. And I just uh, published today, actually, I think you'd find this interesting. It's from an organization called Transcend, and they've got very much a transformative focus uh, to their work in education. And they have this nice um, publication out today called Responding, Recovering, and Reinventing. And it breaks down the phases um, of respond, recover, and reinvent. And they have identified recovery. Uh, that's a pivotal moment and that there are choices to be made. And I think you'll find that to be an interesting read. I can shoot that link to you. Sure, and I'll put the link up. So are people responding and recovering? Or is it too soon to ask? I don't know. I can tell you what I'm seeing, which is at the moment, uh, it's responding. Because so much is happening, it's the you know the year end uh, academic year end. It's largely not happening in the vast majority of schools, and that has been confirmed. 
So it's responding to that. There is a, I think the recovery is not even recovery at this point. It's getting a felt sense of the community needs. And that runs the gamut from, you know, kids for whom school is their primary source of food to teachers being entirely burnt out because what they're doing is extraordinary and the amount of work that it's taken to shift from one mode of delivery to another. And then all the emotional people that comes along with that. And then the reinvention, yes, there are folks thinking and talking about that, but as far as anything clear and explicit, you know, it's, it's too early to say at this point. And I think so much of the reinvention depends uh, upon how long this goes on for and to what extent. K through 12, if it goes on for another academic year, then I think the opportunity for reinvention is, is significant. I mean, I feel like if I asked that question of, of ETS, they'd be like, we're going to do more testing. There's an opportunity to test more. We can streamline things. I think they, they also see this probably as an opportunity. I'm not there. I don't know. I, I worked with uh, David Coleman for a while, for a few years. And I have a feeling that they're like, this is the opportunity to seize market share. And Well, I can't, I can't speak to ETS. I have heard conversations where folks have said, and, and these are teachers on the ground saying, you know, whenever... Hopefully, you know, we all come back uh, in September for the next academic year. We'll need to just do baseline testing to see where everybody's at. You know, and, and it's not a test—a test as in this will determine, you know, some large life event, but rather we're testing to see where everybody is quote at. And this one teacher saying, you know, "Maybe we should do that anyway." You know, is that not just good pedagogical practice that you would get a baseline assessment before you start anything of where? where the class is, where the students are. So that's one example. And, you know, work that organizations like the Mastery Transcript Consortium have been doing with uh, helping schools start to map uh, and think through and provide the tools and resources to really assess if we're saying that things like critical thinking, creative problem solving are really important, how might we begin to assess that kind of work? If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So I'm, gonna, I, I'm not so sanguine about the future. I hope I didn't sound depressed or I hope I didn't say I caught up. I'm, I'm talking very slowly because oftentimes when I'm in certain communities, when I start talking about what I, what I would do, they're like, oh, that's a model of leadership that doesn't work here. That's that, that hero's model. And, and so I don't really know how to speak to someone. I'm not saying this is you, but I feel like people, when I talk about in educational worlds, if I say what my read of the situation, it, it never goes well. <laughs> people are always like, oh, that's not how we work here or something like that. Well, just for kicks, say it and see what happens. <laughs> I mean, it seems to me there's a huge leadership vacuum of people hoping that something will happen, but not actually themselves taking steps to do it. 
Meanwhile, there are people who are taking steps, who I, I expect would take steps, and that will increase. I mean, this is an opportunity for it's it's the opportunity that we make of it. Mm-hmm. And there, ETS. I'm not. I've never worked directly with ETS. I don't really know exactly what they do. I mean, I do kind of know what they do, but I feel like they're gonna. This is an opportunity for them as well. Mm-hmm. They're like my proxy for more testing, for more. The model for learning for for improving academics will be to test and, and hold the teachers yet more accountable for raising standards or for raising performance on standards. And that model to me made so much sense at, at a certain time. I thought, yeah, of course. If a teacher's job is to for students to learn. And the, and the students don't learn. There's a problem with that teacher. We got to find that out. Mm-hmm. That model made a lot of sense to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me now. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, that does make sense. And I think it doesn't help the students. And if it doesn't help the students, it doesn't help society and the future of society. But I think the people who, for whom that makes sense are the majority, or at least it can be it can be sold to them as like we should test more and we should make be more rigorous and and we should hold the teachers more accountable. And but the inspiration comes like. Chris, my friend that I was talking about at Teachers College, Chris Lehman, who's, and his Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia, going there, it's like totally different. It's like, it is, my read, it's student-centered and it, it's tremendously successful in terms of students blossoming and loving being in that community because it's a community of learning. And when I talked to, I've only talked to one graduate of Sub-Air Valley School, which was just pure student direct, self-directed learning. I loved, I, I just kept, I kept thinking of like what it would have been like to have gone to a school like that myself. And I, I could be just rose colored glasses. And in any case, I can't do it. Yeah. I think uh, self-directed learning is at the core of it. And you're reminding me, I, I went through a whole system of education and I think I was 21 or 22 and I was weighing two job offers and I didn't know which one to take. And I was talking with my mentor at the time and he asked me let's just park these two offers what do you want Mm -hmm. and I literally just stared at him I had no answer to the question and I never asked myself that question before and that system of learning had never asked me that question Mm -hmm. before it's you know you get on the the escalator and if you do everything within the bounds of it, then you will be, you know, reliably arriving at your destination. And uh, for many uh, folks, it's, you know, get these scores, do over he- well over here. Well, by the way, now get a whole bunch of APs and extracurriculars, and then you have a chance at college and get to college. And then these are the highest paying jobs. And then you'll end up in your late 20s and early 30s working with a life coach because you're miserable and you don't know why. So back to the top of the hour, all paths lead back to self-directed learning and helping to, you know, instead of covering the curriculum, uncover the human being and help each human being A, understand and B, pursue what is the curriculum that they're here on this earth to pursue. Because each of us ha- has it. I, I believe that, no question. The challenge is, um, as per Sir Ken Robinson, the system does a pretty good job of stripping that from us. And the, I think he mentioned in his TED Talk how kindergartners score at near genius levels for creativity. And that plummets Oof. as you get through high school. And 
the only thing that's really changed is having gone through a standardized system of education in the meantime. And then because I do my work with adults, I'm looking at the Gallup data that shows the vast majority of adults are disengaged at work. And I look at that same Gallup data for students, which shows high engagement at kindergarten up to middle school. And then that plummets as you get through high school. So it's almost like the system is preparing you to be disengaged for a life at work. Whereas you go right back to somewhere like the Sudbury School and Science Leadership Academy, High Tech High, you know, New Tech Networks, innovative schools and networks that really, truly start with the student, not student-centered as in where is the student on this continuum of standards, but who is this human being? What drives them? What questions do they have? How can and we serve them? How can we serve them? And I believe we land on this planet with questions, big questions. And ideally, we get the opportunity to pursue those in a way that is designed and scaffolded to give us just enough scaffolding. And then that scaffolding is taken away the minute it is no longer needed. And it takes me back to Robert Keegan's work, uh, Misa Leahy's work on adult development and the stages of development they articulate in a wonderful book called In Over Our Heads, which talks about childhood, adolescence, socialized mind, self-authoring mind, and transformational mind. And according to Keegan's research, the vast majority of adults are either in socialized mind or in that socialized mind, self-authoring transition. And if you're lucky enough to live beyond the age of 70, you might have a hope of transformational mind. And So many of us find ourselves in that socialized mind, self-authoring mind transition. And it's a real, it's a massive identity quake uh, to come to the dawning realization uh, when you start to look around your life, how much of this have I actually chosen? Yeah. When you said that you were asked, what do you want? There's a part of me that's like, how do you not know that? And then I was like, you know, I got a PhD. No, no, no clue. I had no clue. I had a PhD in physics and an MBA before I started, before I had a clue of that answer. All I was doing was there was a maze put in front of me and I was going to get through that maze faster or better. And did I want that maze? No. Did I even care where it came from? I, I just took it as like, that's a given. I live in a world with certain, like you got to get high scores on the test and the professors are the high value ones. And I just wanted to be like that. I looked around the world and thought, well, okay, these are the ones, everyone defers to the professors. I want to be a professor. I didn't get outside that world and be like, wait a minute, do I want to be a professor? They're not so highly regarded outside elsewhere. And then I started a company, but the company wasn't really um, a really cool invention. I started it. So I wanted to finish what I started. I wanted to do well at what I did, but did I want to be an outdoor advertising person who brought advertising to a new place that had never been before? Is that what I wanted on my gravestone? I didn't think about that (laughs) until later. And so only after graduates, uh, only after business school did things start hitting me. Like I'd gotten the MBA and still didn't ask what I wanted. Now I'm pretty solid about it, but it took me a while to, I could have been here decades ago. Here meaning this level of um, security and confidence in knowing that what I've done is for reasons that, that are inside me based on the world that I live in and the people around me. And not just like make more money, get a good job, get a good house, get a good, get a good car. You should check out the Acton Academy. Are you familiar with that? I don't know them. 
it, check the Acton Academy out. It's um, a wonderful model and it gets to much of what you've just described. Well, I'm going to change topics dramatically. And of course I have to hop off in oh. five minutes. So, Well, there's not enough time then. Then, Because uh, <laughs> I was going to get to the, the environment part, but this is, to me, education and leadership, I guess it hit me when Dewey's book was Education and Democracy. And I thought, well, that's a bit high, high-minded because I think at the time I thought of school as like whatever. I mean, that's what kids do. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized you can't have one without the other and you can't take either of them for granted. Mm-hmm. And this podcast is leadership first, environment second. Well, first among equals, I guess. And education to me is, is the core. The question is not how to lead. The question is how to learn to lead. Mm-hmm. People ask me, like, what, what's one tip you could do? What's something I can do to lead better? And I'm like, you got to practice the basics. You got to, but just to say that is you got to, got to practice and learn. And know, what's your model for leadership? You asked me or definition, I think you said. Definition. So a couple of things. One is I think leadership is an act, not a position. And I go back to Warren Bennis from Harvard Business School, his definition, uh, it's the best I've come across, <laughs> uh, which is that leadership is the art of becoming oneself. Mm. It is precisely that, and I'm paraphrasing here, I think, it's precisely that simple and precisely that difficult. And the most effective leaders I have seen are the best true version of themselves. How do you view yourself in this regard? If you don't mind my putting on the spot. <laughs> a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> a work in progress. I, it's, I, I've, I'm definitely on a journey of really getting very clear on what am I here for and how can I contribute and what might that look like. I think I have work to do to really step into it in a more fulsome way than I have to date. That sounded like a personal call to action. There you go. Yeah. I'd like to leave off with two things. One, a, an open invitation that if you start answering that or start seeing things happening or making things happening, please come back and let us know because it didn't occur until this conversation to me. Even talking to my sister, I was just looking at one family. Mm-hmm. I was not looking at a system the way you've described it. And I didn't it didn't occur to me how big, I mean, now I'm just thinking about all these empty school buildings mm-hmm. and my mind boggles at the, the amount of change that's going on in education and how impossible it must be to figure out how to put things back together again or reconstruct things. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you gave that inside view, even though now I'm probably not going to sleep well tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but is there anything to leave with? Is there anything you'd like to, I'd like to ask the people, ask as a final question, is there anything you'd like to say to the audience of anything? I mean, what we talked about or if we didn't get to anything? Mm-hmm. I would say, uh, regardless, if education is your thing or the environment is your thing, whatever your thing is, that something I've noticed, and the education system perpetuates this, it's uh, credential, not credential as necessary, as in doctor. If you're a doctor, I want you to have all the credentials. Uh, but there is I, the, this other side of it, I think, which is credential as permission. So I will do that once I get my master's in that topic, or I will do that once I have you know, this particular credential. 
And I go back to what I said earlier, that if there is something that is in your heart to do, then do it. And you don't need to have, you don't need to have it mapped out. You just need to take the first tiny baby step in that direction. And that every single person listening to this has a curriculum inside them. And you may not know what that is, but you do know the questions that you're asking yourself. So follow the questions and see where they take you. Now, I, I, I want to end there, but I also want to, can you tell us about where to get your book? What will you find in your book? Can you share that? Sure. Uh, so it's called The Human Side of Changing Education, and you can get it on Amazon or the Corwin Press website. And it is my, it basically summarizes my experience of helping as much as I can folks on the ground leading the kind of transformative change that anybody with whom I speak says is necessary. There is a rising tide of consensus that we have a factory model. It's no longer serving our needs. One would argue it never did from a, a human perspective and unpacks uh, how we might begin to really transform a system in such a way that we get meaningful uh, and sustain change. And with everything that's happening right now, we have a potential accelerant on our hands. So caveat is it was written in 2015, published in 2017. Julie Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you, Joshua. After we stopped recording, I said, I hope I wasn't too assertive or aggressive about the ship at sea part. I confess to you now that I was speaking out of confusion and frustration most likely revealing my ignorance of what to do next or what could be done or what the situation was. She said that she valued the prodding. I hope that I helped. I hope that she wasn't just being nice to me. But I was blown away at how much the pandemic is affecting education. I knew it was big, but I just hadn't thought it through. Empty buildings, parents not knowing what to do, teachers not working, kids unable to play with each other, isolation possibly leading to more testing. At the same time, potential for reconstructing, for building up from the ground up closer families, more love between the adults and children's lives and the children. That is because it's their parents, not the adults being their parents more. I just hadn't even begun to consider it. I hope this got you thinking as much as it got me thinking. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.